Section 7 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. Horace Walpole, Part 1. Note. Letters of Horace Walpole, Oxford University Press, 16 volumes, 96 shillings. Supplementary Letters, 1919, Oxford University Press, 2 volumes, 17 shillings. Horace Walpole was a dainty rogue in porcelain who walked badly. In his best days, as he records in one of his letters, it was said of him that he tripped like a puet, if i do not flatter myself he wrote when he was just under sixty my march at present is more like a dab chick's a lady has left a description of him entering a room knees bent and feet on tiptoe as if afraid of a wet floor when his feet were not swollen with the gout they were so slender he said that he could dance a minuet on a silver penny he was ridiculously lean and his hands were crooked with his unmerited disease an invalid a caricature of the birds and not particularly well dressed in spite of his lavender suit and partridge silk stockings he has nevertheless contrived to leave in his letters an impression of almost perfect grace and dandyism he had all the airs of a beau he affected coolness disdain amateurishness triviality he was a china figure of insolence he lived on the mantelpiece and regarded everything that happened on the floor as a rather low joke that could not be helped he warmed into humanity in his friendships and in his defence of the house of walpole but if he descended from his mantelpiece it was more likely to be in order to feed a squirrel than to save an empire his most common image of the world was a puppet show he saw kings prime ministers and men of genius alike about the size of dolls when george the second died he wrote a brief note to thomas brand dear brand you love laughing there is a king dead can you help coming to town that represents his measure of things those who love laughing will laugh all the more when they discover that a week earlier walpole had written a letter rotund fulsome and in the language of the bended knee begging lord bute to be allowed to kiss the prince of wales's hand his attitude to the court he described to george montague as mixing extreme politeness with extreme indifference his politeness like his indifference was but play at the expense of a solemn world i wrote to lord bute he informed montague thrust all the unexpecteds want of ambition disinterestedness etc that i could amass gilded with as much duty affection zeal etc as possible he frankly professed relief that he had not after all to go to court and act out the extravagant compliments he had written was ever so agreeable a man as king george the second he wrote to die the very day it was necessary to save me from ridicule for my part he adds later in the same spirit my man harry will always be a favourite he tells me all the amusing news he first told me of the late prince of wales's death and to-day of the king's it is not that walpole was a republican of the school of plutarch he was merely a toy republican who enjoyed being insolent at the expense of kings 
and behind their backs he was scarcely capable of open rudeness in the fashion of beau brummel's who's your fat friend his ridicule was never a public display it was a secret treasured for his friends he was the greatest private entertainer of the eighteenth century and he ridiculed the great as people say for the love of diversion i always write the thoughts of the moment he told the dearest of his friends conway and even laugh to divert the person i am writing to without any ill-will on the subjects i mention his letters are for the most part those of a good-natured man it is not that he was above the foible it was barely more than that of hatred he did not trouble greatly about enemies of his own but he never could forgive the enemies of sir robert walpole his ridicule of the duke of newcastle goes far beyond diversion it is the baiting of a mean and treacherous animal whose teeth were tumbling out and whose mouth was tumbling in he rejoices in the exposure of the dribbling indignity of the duke as when he describes him going to court on becoming prime minister in seventeen fifty four on friday this august remnant of the pelhams went to court for the first time at the foot of the stairs he cried and sunk down the yeomen of the guard were forced to drag him up under the arms when the closet door opened he flung himself at his length at the king's feet sobbed and cried god bless your majesty god preserve your majesty and lay there howling embracing the king's knees with one foot so extended that my lord coventry who was luckily in waiting and begged the standers-by to retire with for god's sake gentlemen don't look at a great man in distress endeavouring to shut the door caught his grace's foot and made him roar with pain the caricature of the duke is equally merciless in the description of george the second's funeral in the abbey in which the burlesque duke is introduced as comic relief into the solemn picture he fell into a fit of crying the moment he came into the chapel and flung himself back in a stall the archbishop hovering over him with a smelling bottle but in two minutes his curiosity got the better of his hypocrisy and he ran about the chapel with his glass to spy who was or was not there spying with one hand and mopping his eyes with the other then returned the fear of catching cold and the duke of cumberland who was sinking with heat felt himself weighed down and turning round found it was the duke of newcastle standing upon his train to avoid the chill of the marble walpole indeed broke through his habit of public decorum in his persecution of the duke and he tells how on one occasion at a ball at bedford house he and brand and george selwyn plagued the pitiful old creature who wriggled and shuffled and lisped and winked and spied his way through the company with a conversation at his expense carried on in stage whispers there was never a more loyal son than horace walpole he offered up a prime minister daily as a sacrifice to sir robert's tomb at the same time his aversions were not always assumed as part of a family inheritance he had by temperament a small opinion of men and women outside the circle of his affections it was his first instinct to disparage he even described his great friend madame du defend at the first time of meeting her as an old blind debauchee of wit his comments on the men of genius of his time are almost all written in a vein of satirical intolerance he spoke ill of sterne and dr johnson of fielding and richardson of boswell and goldsmith goldsmith he found silly 
he was an idiot with once or twice a fit of parts boswell's tour of the hebrides was the story of a mountebank and his zany walpole felt doubly justified in disliking johnson owing to the criticism of gray in the lives of the poets he would not even when johnson died subscribe to a monument a circular letter asking for a subscription was sent to him signed by burke boswell and reynolds i would not deign to write an answer walpole told the miss berries but sent down word by my footman as i would have done to parish officers with a brief that i would not subscribe walpole does not appear in this incident the sweet-tempered creature he had earlier claimed to be his pose is that of a schoolgirl in a cutting mood at the same time his judgment of johnson has an element of truth in it though he was good-natured at bottom he said of him he was very ill-natured at top it has often been said of walpole that in his attitude to contemporary men of genius he was influenced mainly by their position in society that he regarded an author who was not a gentleman as being necessarily an inferior author this is hardly fair the contemporary of whom he thought most highly was gray the son of a money broker he did not spare lady mary wortley montague any more than richardson if he found an author offensive it was more likely to be owing to a fastidious distaste for low life than to an aristocratic distaste for low birth and to him bohemianism was the lowest of low life it was certainly fielding's bohemianism that disgusted him he relates how two of his friends called on fielding one evening and found him banqueting with a blind man a woman and three irishmen on some cold mutton and a bone of ham both in one dish and the dirtiest cloth horace walpole's daintiness recoiled from the spirit of an author who did not know how to sup decently if he found boswell's johnson tedious it was no doubt partly due to his inability to reconcile himself to johnson's table manners it can hardly be denied that he was unnaturally sensitive to surface impressions he was a great observer of manners but not a great portrayer of character he knew men in their absurd actions rather than in their motives even their absurd motives he never admits us into the springs of action in his portraits as saint simon does he was too studied a believer in the puppetry of men and women to make them more than ridiculous and unquestionably the vain race of authors lent itself admirably to his love of caricature his account of the vanity of gibbon whose history he admired this side enthusiasm shows how he delighted in playing with an egotistic author as with a trout you will be diverted to hear that mr gibbon has quarrelled with me he lent me his second volume in the middle of november i returned it with a most civil panegyric he came for more incense i gave it but alas with too much sincerity i added mr gibbon i am sorry you should have pitched on so disgusting a subject as the constantinopolitan history there is so much of the arians and eumonians and semi-pelagians and there is such a strange contrast between roman and gothic manners and so little harmony between a consul sabinus and a ricima duke of the palace that though you have written the story as well as it could be written i fear few will have patience to read it he coloured all his round features squeezed themselves into sharp angles he screwed up his button mouth and wrapping his snuff-box said it had never been put together before so well he meant to add but gulped it he meant so well certainly 
for Tillamont, whom he quotes in every page, has done the very thing. Well, from that hour to this, I have never seen him, though he used to call once or twice a week, nor has he sent me the third volume, as he promised. I well knew his vanity, even about his ridiculous face and person, but thought he had too much sense to avow it so palpably. So much, he concludes, for literature and its fops. The comic spirit leans to an underestimate rather than an overestimate of human nature, and the airs the authors gave themselves were not only a breach of his code, but an invitation to his contempt. You know, he once wrote, I shun authors, and would never have been one myself if it obliged me to keep such bad company. They are always in earnest, and think their profession serious, and will dwell upon trifles and reverence learning. I laugh at all these things, and write only to laugh at them and divert myself. None of us are authors of any consequence, and it is the most ridiculous of all vanities to be vain of being mediocre. He followed the Chinese school of manners and made light of his own writings. What have I written, he asks, that was worth remembering even by myself? It would be affected, he tells Gray, to say I am indifferent to fame. I certainly am not, but I am indifferent to almost anything I have done to acquire it. The greater part are mere compilations, and no wonder they are, as you say, incorrect, when they were commonly written with people in the room. End of section 7